Would I have been happier? Maybe. But then happiness is overrated. Greg Egan. He's kind of crazy. She's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is divorced. The other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a Silver Linings Playcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Silver Linings Playcast. As far as I know, the only podcast solely devoted to talking about Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, and the Silver Linings Playbook, the book. I'm your host, as always, Jamie Ward. Welcome back to an actual episode that was not recorded last minute. Just for a little update, because it's become very unpredictable now. This week, we are, in fact, recording in studio at Cotton Gin Studios in Louisiana. Uh, You can probably by now take a stab or a guess at where I'm recording based on the audio quality and the late lateness uh, of the episode. We're finally getting, I do want to say, I have been off on, I, off on, I just said off on, that was totally contradictory. I have not been on track schedule-wise with the podcast But in a bigger picture, uh, I feel like I have been more on track thematically, content-wise. Delivering the exact same low-quality content, content, non-sequitur, makes no sense, loosely tied to the theme of the podcast content. And that's why I'm very excited that even though this week is late and we are coming off one of the most egregious mistakes I have ever made in podcast history, which was not uh, getting an episode up for like three days, and then then putting up just a rebroadcast, which was just just a terrible sin. There's like no bigger sin in podcasting. I I think consistency is probably the key to podcasting. Consistency, quality, uh, and then... I'm not sure if I knew what any of the the themes about what makes a good podcast were, I may have one. But I don't. I have this one. <laughs> the reason I'm saying that I'm excited about sort of the follow-through on a general scale, on a larger scale, is that one, like I said, this is being recorded uh, actually ahead of time, right? And I am finishing off the second half of a list which I announced that we were going to be going over I th- almost a month ago now. Three episodes, and considering an episode is a week, uh, theoretically. I th- hey, I, I've not been doing that bad, given that this is episode 87, including two, broad- two rebroadcasts and one special extra episode, which means it's only been going on for 86 total weeks. We're getting close to the two-year marker. So, if if almost all of them have been broadcast by Thursday, the consistency is pretty good for a broadcast. We're, we're still in the 90s, 90%, I think. Uh, you know who might be able to tell us what the exact percentage is? The quote at the beginning of the episode, Mr. Greg Egan, who I did not who that, know who that was, but I liked the quote. Greg is uh, apparently an Australian science fiction writer and amateur mathematician, which I think is kind of 
interesting, but it, I thought about it for a second and it made sense. He went into the sciences, has a very uh, analytical mind for math, and then also working that uh, right side of his brain to create fiction. He's, he's award-winning, but I didn't recognize any of his stuff because he's not Terry Pratchett, Neil Gaiman, or uh, Anne Rice, or Ray Bradbury, or Douglas Adams, or uh, uh, Timothy Zahn. I guess I know a couple science fiction writers, but not, not that many, because I probably haven't read any books by any of those people. I just happen to know who they are. Most of them from watching Neil Gaiman interviews and hearing him talk about some of his other favorite people. What is this thing that I said we were finally going to get to cover in this episode, which I am excited because in the, in the, in the annual scheme of things, in the overall year, in the looking at how many episodes ago was it, scheme of things, I am super on track, even though we are now four minutes into this podcast and I haven't even gotten to the subject, which I was literally trying to get to, but it's because I'm so excited. Uh, we are going to do the, the rest of, and I would say the top 25 films from the USA Today list that we stopped. Uh, this was the two-part episode. Uh, 25 top films from a list of 50 top films that are the most underrated as far as critics gave them a low score, but audiences gave them a high score. And we uh, did the first half of this two episodes ago, so if you want to hear the first 50 through 26, check out episode 85 two weeks ago. We, we cover the top... Uh, so, and then I'm not really sure to refer to this list if this would be the top 25 films, uh, because the list won, it went in descending order from 50 to 1. It's ranking movies that were generally not thought of as good by the critics. So you have a descending list, this w w which would make the top uh, list, there's a couple ways to think of it. Um, is it the, the 50 worst movies, like counting down 50, which is almost okay, to number one, which is the worst film, but that people liked, or is it the, uh, going the other way, the top 50 films, 50, the worst, bar people barely liked it, but critics hated it, all the way to, uh, critics hated it, but people loved it, you know? an ascending order, a top list, uh, is it by the discrepancy between critics and audiences? Um, critics kind of hated it, but audiences really loved it, or critics kind of hated it, and audiences kind of loved it. Uh, you know, I if I was making that kind of list, the discrepancy metric, then I would put the list by the smallest margin difference between critics and audiences to the largest. Um, anyway, there's too many different ways one could do that, and man, would I not like to have Mr. Greg Egan here with me to help out, because what would be more helpful than somebody that has that uh, writer's brain and also a better understanding of math and statistics than I do? Let's jump right into the list, shall we? Uh, I, you can, like I said... 
look up the old episode to get the number 50 through 26. Right now we are at number 25. It is a 1990 film called Four Rooms. If you've seen this, I've seen this. I enjoyed it a lot. That being said, it's kind of like four different movies. I know that this uh, movie, um, I always, I used to falsely think of it as a Quentin Tarantino movie. And what, what the deal is, is it is it is a film that has four different segments shot in four different uh, rooms, stories that take place in four different rooms in a, in a motel. And different directors and actors actually made the different, they, they wrote and directed the different segments, which are all supposed to... So it's not an anthology film because I believe... I, I haven't seen it in a very long time. I believe they are supposed to cohesively go together. Uh, but it, but I think because of the formatting, uh, it wouldn't be something that Quentin Tarantino wouldn't do himself. And he was one of the writers and the directors of one of the segments. So this is why I falsely think of it as a Quentin Tarantino film. I think it's actually... I think it over... Either is attributed to, or uh, he did a segment as well um, on it. Uh, I don't know. Let's just look at who did the the uh, the, the directors: uh, Allison Anders, Alexander Rockwell. Uh, oh, Rob, this is what I was looking for. Robert Rodriguez was the other director too. Um, and so I think it's it's more considered a. Uh, Robert Rodriguez film. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it is, uh, attributed to all of them on the, on the poster stuff. It has all four of their names too. Uh, but I think because you have a movie with, uh, Tim Roth, Antonio Banderas, those are, are both people, um, that have been, in their movies, so it, they're just a little, little more associated. I don't know who the other two people are. It's not important in the moment because we have so many more movies to get through right now. Number twenty-four. Oh, are we? Did we go over the ratings for the? Uh, it got. Uh, it got a IMDb tomato, Rotten Tomato audience score of six point eight out of ten. Uh, IMDb audience gave it a six point seven out of ten. Uh, Rotten Tomato Critics gave it 3.5 out of 10. Domestic box office was 4.3 million, uh, which it, it seems like a good small movie. Um, critics hated it. Uh, I would actually be kind of interested to look up which critics hated it. And then also, you sort of have to give them this weird thing of like, there's four different movies going on too. Are you ranking these all together or are they being treated like separate things? The next one we just said, uh, 88 Minutes. It was a 2007 movie with Al Pacino, Alicia Witt, and Ben McKenzie. Uh, it got a Rotten Tomatoes audience rating of 6.2 out of 10, IMDb audience rating 5.9 out of 10, and a Rotten Tomato uh, critic rating of 2.6 out of 10. Box office... It made $16.93 million, which I'm guessing is a pretty decent take uh, for a film like that. Like I said, it started Al Pacino. Uh, uh, let's see. I think I saw it. I don't remember it, but I think it like was good enough. It was just sort of like some 
psychological action thriller, uh, little espionage. That I, you know, it was definitely one of those that was like not remarkable, but it was probably fine. And it's also one of those films that I think definitely was just supposed to be what it was. I'm, I'm looking this up though, and it was nominated for a Razzie Award in 2009, which uh, Al Pacino, no, wait, uh, Alliance of Women Film Journalists uh, nominated this movie uh, for most egregious age difference between the leading man and the love interest. Which was actually a nomination that um, I believe Silver Linings Playbook got for Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence. That pairing of actors got now it. I to don't know. Um, <laughs> but it was it was it was fine. This that one probably belongs on the list because it's not uh, extraordinary in any way. The Best of Me, 2014, James Marsden, Michelle Monaghan, Luke Bracey. Rotten Tomato audience, 7. IMDb audience, 6.7. Rotten Tomato critic, 3.6. Made $26.76 million at the box office. I'm guessing this was a romantic comedy or romantic drama. Uh, and I think we sort of talked about that seems like the average rating. that You, you get a 6 or 7 if you make a fine romance film, because there is just a huge, huge market. It is probably one of the largest markets, genre-wise, for films. They don't all have to be uh, love story. They don't all have to be Romeo and Juliet. They don't all have to be four weddings and a funeral when Harry met Sally. Or is it when Sally met Harry? When Harry met Sally. Um, okay, so I don't, I don't even know what that one is, so we're just going to move on. Uh, number 22... A 2015 film, Little Boy, starring Jacob Silvati, Emily Watson, and David Herney. Rotten Tomato audience score 8.2. Audience IMDb audience 7.4. Rotten Tomato critics 4.5. Grossed 6.42 million dollars. Uh, this looks like it actually. So so 8.2 is a really decent rating, audience uh, wise. 7.4 is a solid uh, IMDb audience. And, and 4.5, I feel like, so that's just outside of the range of average. So I guess this is probably one that was like, it was not groundbreaking, but it was probably fine. I have no idea what it was from, what it was about. I don't remember hearing about it. I don't know who Jacob Silvati is. Um, I don't know who Emily Watson is. And I don't know who David Herney, Hen, Henry, David Henry. I don't know who David Henry is, but I apologize for mispronouncing his name originally. All right, number 21, 2011 film, Courageous, starring Alex Kendrick, Ken Bevel, and Kevin Downs. Rotten Tomato audience, 8.6 out of 10. IMDb audience, 7 out of 10. Rotten Tomato critic, 4.8. Box office, 34.5. I believe this was a Christian film, which I don't remember if we talked about two episodes ago, but these... Tend to if you have a Christian film, they tend to have the exact same discrepancy, much like a uh, uh, a genre film, the horror comedy or uh, horror comedy or romance, as well. You get extremely enthusiastic, good good uh, ratings 
from the people that the film is for. You tend to get lower than average ratings from the people that it is not for. And then the critics, um, I usually sort of not swayed. So I'm like, again, I think 4.8 is not really saying it is a bad movie. It's just saying it is not a spectacular movie either. I could be wrong. It might not have been a uh, Christian film at all. Um, not that that really matters, just sort of to explain the stats we're getting on it. All right, number 20, The Covenant, 2006, starring Stephen Strait, Sebastian Stan, Toby Hemingway. Rotten Tomato audience, 6.6. IMDb audience, 5.3. Rotten Tomato critic, 2.8. Now, I'm really surprised to see this at number 20, because I feel like 6.6 and 5.3 are, are relatively low audience scores, given that it got a 2.8, so maybe this is going by the ratio of the discrepancy between what audiences thought and what the critics thought. All right, number 19, The Life of David Gale, 2003 film. This starred Kevin Spacey, Kate Winslet, Laura Linney. It's probably one of the uh, sort of more star-studded uh, film. Well, I'm saying that. I guess we're getting into way more uh, star-studded. I'm saying that not remembering anything about items number 50 through 26. Now, I actually remember saying this. This was a film that I was assigned to see in uh, when I was in college. Now, I was not assigned to see this for a film class. I was assigned to see this for a philosophy and rhetoric class. I remember, uh, from the best I can remember, it is about a death row inmate who... Um, it has something to do with, I think, like... Uh, proving your innocence or guilty. It's its a commentary on the justice system. Um, I remember I really liked it when I first saw it uh, because sort of impact hit heavy for being uh, uh, somebody that was sort of like coming into my own and wanted to have really strong opinions and I felt like it, you know, oh, this is cool, it's already saying something. Um, I remember being kind of surprised that I liked it and it got really low ratings, but I think everybody else uh, seemed to like it. A lot, which is clear because it got 7.2 and 7.6 in the uh, Rotten Tomato and IMDb audience scores, respectively. Now, I do feel that if I went back and I watched it, <clears throat> based on the reasons that I think I liked it, I would probably not score it as high. I don't think it was a terrible film, but I am sort of curious to go back and see it because I am wondering why the critics thought it was so bad. And part of what my speculation would be at this point is that so there's sort of... I remember there's kind of a big plot twist, and I also think because I was younger, this was a 2003 film, and I had not seen any, uh, you know, nearly as many movies at this point. So it was a much more uh, surprising plot twist to me, which, you know, and I think, I think, okay, actually, too, this is a really good point that is coming up. Critics watch a lot of movies, and the audience does not, and I think... Or, or sometimes they do, and sometimes they watch more. But but I think you can sort of guess that a critic is more likely to have seen more movies and be familiar with more more classic plots and devices and, and things like that than your average film audience member that is going to rate a film. So you have a situation like this where the, the film is impacting a lot of the audience because also look at the age 
uh, the the approximate age of a film goer there. I was probably in the key demographic when this film came out, which uh, I'm still I'm still in the key demographic. I'm not that old, <clears throat> but I'm probably not what uh, statisticians actually care about. If they, uh, <laughs> this is so terrible to say. Anyway, um, that so that is part of probably I probably liked the movie more than a critic did because it struck me I had not seen as many movies with this device used. Now, if I went back and I watched, I'm not an official film critic, but having seen a lot more movies, having been through the rest of film school, I saw I saw this film in I believe um, my first year or second year of of school. So I wasn't really heavy into the film program. I was just in the general studies. Uh, program at this time so I probably would not be as impressed with what was going on in the film from a filmmaking standpoint as I saw especially not from a writing standpoint um, because of the amount of writing I have done and, and a lot of my friends have done and and stuff uh, I think you, it's, it's like you 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 do magic you've been doing magic yourself and then you start <clears throat> excuse me uh, judging other magicians performances a lot more harshly um, and it's not necessarily meant to be a bad thing. It's not a knock against them. In fact, the thing is, as long as you're consistent, that is fine. I was once on a judging panel for uh, a comedy festival, and, and I, I was judging the, the submission tapes. And being a comic myself, I had been a comic for about nine years at the time when I took over this role. And it was interesting because we had... Um, several comics uh, of varying degrees in their career who were some of the judges, and there was some people that were not necessarily comics themselves. Now, we all tended to give uh, different scores numerically because we were assigning, like, I think it was out of 30 points. It was sort of like a uh, jokes, material, uh, material, stage presence overall. Um, there might have been more... Factors I'm not remembering, but uh, originality. Um, so there was a lot of room for deviation. So a person might get a different score, like a wildly different score numerically. But as long as we were consistent with sort of how proportionally we thought, like for me, uh, I gave out, I was very generous, I found. Which was funny because I feel like I was very harsh too. I gave out... Um, pretty high scores overall and I thought I would be really mean um, but I was at least consistent like everybody was bad probably got in the four or fives three would be a really extreme case with one being like you had to have deliberately been trying to do this bad because you were you did this bad uh, so most of my scores were usually somewhere in the teens to 20s even the bad ones whereas um, one of one of uh, our, our co actually our, our vice president and one of my personal friends, and he's Canadian. He's a super analytical guy, super smart. He understands comedy too. He was a former comedy club general manager, uh, but he really gave like his scale was much more of like the one five ten, right? But it was still the same. Um, uh, proportion-wise. So when you added, so the aggregate totals between all the judges uh, were was a pretty good determination given the amount of people you had judging and the criteria that we were judging on. 
so anyway, that is a weird little bit. Uh, Mr. Egan would be thrilled to have that conversation with me right now. Let's go to movie number 18. This is a 2009 film, Old Dogs. Now, I was saying that, that I thought the last film was one of her first uh, star-studded films, but this one actually has some really heavy hitters. You got uh, Robin Williams, you got John Travolta. That's all in the notes that I wrote down. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I consider Robin Williams one of the just mm, top, top uh, uh, people that ever acted. He really was. I mean, I, he was such a good actor, but he was a comedic actor too. And I really strongly believe that there's not enough consideration given to actors that are known for their comedic roles when we talk about the best acting roles, uh, or best actors of our generations, best actors of our time. Here's the thing. I think if the, the baseline to be in movies to be cast to win auditions is you know know your craft be able to uh embody characters that are not you and and then the great ones add uh part of themselves but also uh change themselves or something i don't know i'm i don't have the acting background myself but i think so many times you you look at the uh, the Daniel Day Lewis's the Helen Mirren's um, or going back for, and I am not saying those are not some of the greatest uh, actors because oh my goodness they completely are too I'm just saying you know who never gets brought up in those conversations enough even though I think they will more and more because more um, uh, these these more recent actors uh, have become much more formative uh, characters in movies that have impacted people from my generation and stuff. Actually, so I would venture into a whole separate uh, line of thinking, too. I think comedies play a different role. Part of this, too, is there are better role comic roles uh, because there are better comedic roles written, and it is giving comedic actors opportunities to show their range far more than in olden day films. And when I'm talking, I'm talking like, you know, the gold and silver, uh, age era of, um, you know, because you have one, uh, some like it hot, uh, hilarious, hilarious classic movie. I think the performances in that are amazing. Um, I actually think, uh, Marilyn Monroe, was a phenomenal actor, actress, if you want to get technical with the labels, but I think I, I am not meaning that gender-wise. I think everybody, everybody that acts uh, is entitled to the title of actor, somebody that is performing, uh, you know, a character. But I think uh, comedy is written uh, with a lot more drama in it now, and that's just the evolution of what studios are watching audiences crave. The writing is not new itself. The writing is not new at all. If you go back to Shakespeare's time, uh, he had real, real uh, drama in his comedies. Not just him, too. Uh, he's, he's, you know, held up as sort of this monolith of writing 
but that is just because of the, the classicness. And the reason that is, is because his stuff survived. There's probably other people who might have written better things than him. Now, I do know he is known for, for being one of history's greatest wordsmiths. Whether he stole his plays or not, uh, his personal vocabulary, there's some type of uh, vocabulary score that is given to uh, literary figures, and he scored, uh, I think he has one of the highest, that, that just um, structurally, some of his writing is some of the most complex ever studied. So again, if that was his or not, it doesn't, it's, it's not really about him that I'm talking about, but uh, you have people that are writing now that write comedies to have a lot more uh, heart, to be darker. That it's, they're, they're focusing on the comedic situations in real life situations, bringing out the truth. Comedy in film and TV is not always played for a slapstick laugh now. Uh, sometimes it is played for the awkwardness. I, I think um, I'm the, I, it probably wasn't the first show that ever did it, but it was one that was completely uh, loved, beloved by a generation, The Office. And Steve Carell, I, and I think he really sort of brought, he brought cringe humor mainstream. And I will go out on a limb uh, with this, saying... Steve Carell made cringe humor mainstream. Cringe humor has been an internet thing for a long time. It's been a, a young, like, a, uh, not, not like young people now, but I think cringe humor has been like humor of the youth, um, humor of whatever youth it was for whatever current generation you had that was exploring media. Because if you look back, uh, you have even going all the way back to uh, Greek times, there are examples of, of uh, writers, there are philosophers at the time, and playwrights who basically were smartasses of their time, writing stuff, being like, ha ha, I'm making fun of all the other people that, that are my contemporaries right now. Uh, so the office comes along, and, I, and this is the funny thing, there was a, everybody knows this now, uh, I'm saying this like anybody could possibly not know it was based on a British version. And this is why I'm uh, saying that it's really, really, I think The Office only made cringe humor mainstream in the States, too. Because The Office was a beloved show, use the word beloved twice now, uh, in the UK. But if you go and you look at a lot of the British comedies you have a lot more of that humor. In fact, I don't know why the, the U.S. didn't say, hey, making this British show style humor in the U.S. is really successful. Let's go make a whole bunch of theirs. Which is probably good. Because, you know, we always complain about, oh, everything, we ma everything made now is a sequel or a remake. And, in fact, uh, this is one area where... When The Office became very popular, a lot of original programming did come out. You had uh, Parks and Rec, which I think the biggest complaint was that that was, in fact, um, sort of like ripping off The Office itself. But you had a lot of sort of these type of shows. Uh, one of the ones that I've sort of come to 
enjoy, um, which is more recent than them, but I, I liked uh, now Superstore to um, no. a bunch. Uh, and it, <clears throat> all of this, say Robin Williams, one of the greatest actors that I will always love and think of, uh, you know. Also, John Travolta is in this film, and I want to say, I don't, I don't know what your opinion is on him, but he's taken some really bad roles. Even some of his most iconic roles have been in bad movies. Uh, but him and Nick Cage face off. I don't care what you say. I think that is a great movie for being what it is supposed to be. I am 100% biased on this. And I know I've talked about it being one of the only books I've read ever, but oh my goodness, Face Off, uh, Face Off is is just one of the John Wooiest of the Woo films. Uh, I am a huge fan of Nicolas Cage. It is just an absolutely ridiculous plot idea. I don't know how they didn't make a sequel, except for the fact I'm I'm kind of glad they did because why, the the uh, let's see the the review aggregation website Rotten Tomatoes records that 92% of 87 critical reviews were positive and an average of 7.9 on. Um, I I wonder if this is one that hasn't fallen that has fallen off since then uh, because I feel like people don't think of it as a great film, but it absolutely, it really is a great film for it. No, you know what? It's a great movie for what a movie is supposed to be. Face off is everything that it should be. It was nominated for an Academy Award, Academy Award nominated, uh, face off. I'm going to start calling it that all the time. It won a uh, Saturn Award. It won two for Best Director, John Woo, and Best Writers, Mike Webb and Michael O'Callery, which uh, Saturn Awards are the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, Horror Films, USA. So, very appropriate. Probably should have. I wonder what it ran against that year. That would be very interesting. Let's see. Saturn Award for Best Action Adventure Thriller Film. The nominees were L.A. Confidential, Breakdown, Breakdown, The Game, Tomorrow Never Dies, Titanic, and Face Off, the winner being L.A. Confidential. Mmm! Mmm! This is interesting. The 1998 Saturn Awards. So, if Titanic was uh, in the running this year, it's it's interesting, because I'm, I think we all know Titanic just, just uh, had a Titanic year at the Academy Awards, there is some really good and some really bad. L.A. Confidential, I remember that being a very good film. I, th I think that was nominated for uh, all the other things. But I'm looking at this and I'm just saying, The Game, that is one of the top psychological thriller movies, in my opinion, of, of, the, recent, of the last, I want to say the last two decades, and it falls outside of two decades old. Um, the Game is an amazing movie, though. I, I actually probably referenced it a couple months ago. <clears throat> so that, I, hmm, I'm having a hard time with this, too, because I feel like L.A. Confidential, the, how did they change the best action adventure thriller film? So, 
Hmm. Uh, LA Confidential, I, uh, Thriller? Adventure? I, hmm. I don't know. I haven't seen it in a really long time. Uh, the game's definitely a psychological thriller. Uh, Breakdown, I think, is an action film. Tomorrow Never Dies, a James Bond film. I feel like they probably are always nominated for action films. Uh, I wonder, I bet, I, I hope some of the, um, Craig, I was going to say Craig Ferguson, not Craig Ferguson. That would have been a very interesting. I would have loved to have seen that, actually. Craig Ferguson, James Bond, but uh, Daniel Craig, James Bond. Face Off, I kind of feel like Face Off should have, between... Between Face Off and the game, action, adventure, thriller is kind of... Hmm, I might have even given it to Titanic. Reluctantly. Reluctantly. But, let's see. We're still, we're still looking through the Saturn Awards. Best Actor nominees were Pierce Brosnan, Tomorrow Never Dies, Al Pacino, The Devil's Advocate, John Travolta, Face Off, Kevin Costner, The Postman, Will Smith, Men in Black, Nicolas Cage, Face Off. Hmm, personal choice? Uh, Nicolas Cage, Face Off. Uh... Best f feeling? Hmm. Oh, that's tough. Oh, I've got to say, though, I really don't think it was Pierce Brosnan's Never Tomorrow Never Dies. Again, the option, Pierce Brosnan's Tomorrow Never Dies, Al Pacino, The Devil's Advocate, Kevin Costner, The Postman, Will Smith, Men in Black, Nicolas Cage, and John Travolta, both for face Uh Al Pacino? The Devil's Advocate? Come on! Really? Really? The only thing I could see, maybe they were just not giving... Uh, it is Al Pacino being Al Pacino, but, like, you're not really... I... Mm, as much as this pains me, because my every instinct in me wants to give it to Nicolas Cage for face-off. For me, from my most objective view, is between Al Pacino, The Devil's Advocate, or Will Smith, Men in Black. And it's a little bit of Will Smith being Will Smith 2 in Men in Black. I think that was a fantastic role for him. Uh, that was a really fun movie. Again, super fun. Uh, it was probably, uh, you know, it's, uh, that was a very impactful film. Okay, so, best actress. Jodie Foster, Contact, Jennifer Lopez, Anaconda, Mira Sorvino, Mimic, Nev Campbell, Scream 2, Pam Greer, Jackie Brown, Sigourney Weaver, Alien Resurrection. Wow. Mm, this is tougher. Uh, Jodie Foster won for Contact. Which I, so here's my thing. I have no problem with Jodie Foster winning Contact. Maybe Contact. Pam Greer, Jackie Brown, one of Tarantino's most underrated films. Hmm. Uh, I don't know anything about who makes up this organization. Uh, I didn't see Alien Resurrection, nor did I see Mimic, uh, Scream 2, or Anaconda. Uh, I'd like Sigourney Weaver. I'm sure she probably won for one of the other Alien movies, so that's fine. Um, best costuming: Austin Powers, National Man of Mystery, Gattaca, Villa Element, Batman and Robin, Alien Resurrection, Starship Troopers, Starship Troopers One. Pretty fine with that. Best uh, director: Barry Sonnefeld, Men in Black, John Woo, Face Off, Jean Pierre Jeunet, uh, Alien Resurrection, Robert Zemeckis. Contact, Steven Spielberg, The Lost World Jurassic Park, Paul Verhoeven, Starship Troopers, um, John Woo, Face Off. John Woo won. That's uh, actually a pretty tough year for that. And Oh, and here's an interesting thing that uh, I've talked to Nick, who's been on previous podcasts. Maybe we'll talk about this too, because he could turn me on to the, the Blank Check podcast that y'all have heard referenced to. 
the Paul Verhoeven Starship Trek. Now, this is a movie that I think has aged well, like, looks better looking back, too. Um, I actually, I'm very curious if Starship Troopers is going to be on this list of movies, because I remember it got panned a little bit by critics. People love it. It's become a cult, cult classic. Also, Paul Verhoeven really has an amazing <coughs> record of doing great movies. Um, from this list, personally, it would be between, for me, you know what, though, no, I, I think I would give it, I think John, this is probably right. Uh, um, Contact was a really good movie. Men in Black was a really good movie, but I think John Woo did the, like, he left his, he left his mark on his film more than anybody else left theirs. With, mm, with, between him and Paul Verhoeven. Uh, best fantasy film. Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery, Batman and Robin, George of the Jungle, Hercules, Mouse Hunt, The Lost World, Jurassic Park. Austin Powers won. Um, I'm fine with that. That one probably won. Oh, fun fact, though. So the movie Mouse Hunt, which I'm, <laughs> I guess is considered a fantasy film, um, which is fine. Uh, the director of that was Gore Rubinsky. It was written by a man named Adam Rifkin. Now, Adam Rifkin and I have a history. This is kind of fun. I said, like, history. No, I was an extra on one of Adam Rifkin's films. The last movie star. A 2017 film. The reason this is fun is because I was called in to audition for an actual role for the film. Uh, they said that they were looking for diversity. They gave me the sides. I practiced this for a while. I drove to Knoxville. I was living in Greenville, South Carolina at the time. I had rehearsed. And they told me that they wanted an Asian comic for the role. Not as movie company. Not a movie company. The, my buddy, who was a comic in Knoxville. So I went in there, all prepared. And I started reading my lines like, uh, Oh, uh, Vic... This is, uh, and now this is cool because it was a pretty, uh, small movie, um, small budget as far as like what it, it was, uh, for, for a movie. Um, so like the, the director, Adam was there, the, uh, casting director, um, some of the, uh, producers, they were like room full of. People wearing suits that I'll make more money than I will ever make in my life. And they were sort of shocked and looking at me weird as I did this whole, Oh, Vic, uh, you have to go to a film festival. And then I paused to the speechless room. And then I said, I'm sorry. I was told this was an Asian character. Is this an Asian character? I didn't really sense anything about that. And they all start laughing and being like, hmm, not like, you didn't need to do that. That was kind of weird. Uh, and then they gave me sides for a different role to read, which I was not able to read nearly as well, and I did not get a part. But I did get to be an extra, and the reason I would never um, brag about being an extra, because I was an extra in all... No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, because, I, like, I know it was... No, it was, it was fun. It was a fun experience. I'm, I'm not trying to speak badly of being... An extra L. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's a cool experience. Uh, everybody should do it once uh, because it is it's a pretty democratic process. Like, if you show up, that lets you be it. If you can be a person and you can be present, like, that's really the requirements to be uh, 
an extra. The the reason I I care about this movie though, it was called The Last Movie Star. It, it is called The Last Movie Star. The the working title was called Dog Years, and it was a like a tribute to Burt Reynolds and his life and career. And I'm not saying tri- like he was in it. Burt Reynolds was in it, and we got to meet Burt. Um, he talked to us all. Uh, he was just the coolest dude ever. I love Burt Reynolds, and it, it was just really, really cool because he, um, the movie was written by Adam because he loved Burt Reynolds so much, uh, you know, and he wanted Burt to have a shot at what would probably be his last movie. He wanted to make him just a really great role if it was in fact going to be his last role and it and sadly it was but it was such a uh, a fitting like the the film was a tribute for somebody who got to enjoy uh making it and being being a part of it um but he was such a, a humble person which and and I've I've heard stories and it's not even about him like being at the end of uh, an amazing career I've heard I that he it was a wonderful person always and that that's why Adam one of the reasons Adam was so excited uh to make the film and, and wanted to but uh Bert Bert knew that we all knew that he was Bert Reynolds all of us extras and he knew the, uh the experience of what it's like to be um actually probably I don't think he was never an extra uh, he wouldn't need to be but um like he just just did he talk to us? He talked to us all like people. And that's not the experience I've had on all the sets. Um, not that I've never really cared. I used, I was, when I first got into comedy, I thought I was going to just become a comedy star super fast and start working clubs and making my money doing comedy. And so I was, I was trying to supplement it with something that I thought was sort of in the entertainment industry as well. And so I was going out for a lot of extra work to sort of make a paycheck while I was waiting for the, the big bucks of money to roll in doing comedy and I've since given up on both. I'm just kidding. Uh, I gave up on them a long time ago. (laughs) I am just kidding. I am still doing both while I wait for the podcasting, uh, big bucks to roll in. I am just kidding. I, uh, no, no. Anyway, he told us stories and I know that almost everybody (laughs) that listens to this knows who Jerry Farber was. It was a very, Barbarous experience uh, of having this this guy who is just uh, a uh, you know you know he's been through the whole Hollywood story and had so many amazing experiences and he just wanted he really had a conversation with all of us sitting in front of him uh, where he was sharing with us it wasn't like I'm sure it was for him too. But it was just one of the most special things that I'll ever have. And it's amazing because it wasn't even a one-on-one thing. But he was really that cool. I can't speak highly enough of who I know Burt Reynolds to be in a brief moment. Anyway, that uh, let's get back to the Saturn Awards really quick so we can go back to the Silver Lines Playcaster. Best Cable Genre Syndicated Series, Outer Limits, Babylon 5, Earth Final Conflict, Deep Space Nine, Xena Warrior Princess, Star- Stargate SG-1. What a 
What an era of uh, cable sci-fi series. That that was classics right there. Outer Limits 1. Uh, Deep Space Nine was my favorite of those, but also I don't know what season they were on. Best network, genre network series. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Profiler, Star Trek Voyager, The Simpsons, X-Files, Visitor. Buffy won that year. Best genre TV actor. Steven Weber, The Shining, David Duchovny, X-Files, John Corbett, The Visitor, Michael T. Weiss, The Pretender, Nicholas Brendan, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Richard Dean Anderson, Stargate 1, Steven Weber won. Best genre TV actress. Ellie Walker, Profiler, Jerry Ryan, Star Trek Voyager, Sarah Michelle Geller, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Petra Wilson, La Femme Nikita, Jillian Anderson, The X-Files, Kate Mulgrew, Star Trek Voyager, Kate Mulgrew won. Best home video release. Okay, well, they, this is a very specific set of awards that they give to things. Uh, I'm just going to make this go even faster, but the winner first. Winner, uh, Cats Don't Dance. Nominated, Beauty and the Beast, The Enchanted Christmas, The Haunted World of Edward D. Wood Jr., Wishmaster, Prophecy 2, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. Best Horror Film. Winner, The Devil's Advocate. Probably, rightly so, and we'll read the rest to make sure, but Anaconda, I Know What You Did Last Summer, Mimic, Phantoms, Scream 2, Devil's Advocate, Farnaway. Best Makeup. Winner, Mimic, Batman and Robin, Face Off, Men in Black, Devil's Advocate, Spawn. You're telling me best makeup wasn't putting uh, John Travolta's face on Nicolas Cage and Nicolas Cage on Jean... Oh, okay. Uh, doing a little bit of research, we thought that was actually special effects mixed with they had the other actor just switch roles. So, never mind. Um, that makes sense then. Best music. Men in Black. Winner, Danny Elfman, Men in Black. Uh, nominated, Commandments, Joseph Vitrielli, uh, Face Off, Contact, uh, Gattaca, Tomorrow Never Dies. That's probably fine. Best performance by a young actor-actress. I'm wondering, young actor-actress within these genres or everything? I don't know. We'll find out. Winner, Jenna Malone, Contact. Nominated, Alexander Goodwin, Mimic, Mara Wilson, A Simple Wish, Vanessa... Chester, The Lost World, Jurassic Park, Sam Huntington, Jungle to Jungle, Dominique Swain, Face Off. All right, Best Science Fiction Film, Winner, Men in Black. All right, Alien Resurrection, Nominated, Contact, Starship Troopers, The Postman, Fifth Element. Um, I feel like that's okay, because I feel, yeah, yeah, uh, even though, so I really like the movie Contact. I believe that was based on one of the, uh, a book by one of the prolific sci-fi writers, um, Maybe it wasn't a good movie. I don't remember. Uh, best single genre TV presentation. Winner, The Shining. Nominated, Cinderella, The Brandy One. Ooh, ooh, okay, we might have a discussion about this. House of Frankenstein, Invasion, Snow White, A Tale of Terror, uh, Retroactive. The Stephen King's The Shining, made for TV. One, didn't know that this was a thing, but Nick Cassano, you and I were talking about that earlier this very week when I was saying I've never actually seen The Shining and this is not Kubrick's Shining. We were actually talking about it too. Apparently, so there is a the TV miniseries The Shining. Interesting. 1997 and it uh, won two primetime Emmys, makeup and sound uh, and nominated for Outstanding 
miniseries. Fascinating. Uh, so, I know that that is classic, and King wins a lot of stuff. Uh, the The only reason I'm taking pause is the uh, the Cinderella, Russian Hammerstein Cinderella, with Brandy and Whitney Houston. Um, for for versions of that story being done on film, I am going to take a really strong position on something that you probably would be surprised that I care about so much. Um, really good. Really, really good for what it is. Uh, which is a fairy tale, musical, classic story, fantasy play. Let's not even delve into your giving, um, uh, doing a black casting, which is very progressive for something that is that has mostly been done by white people. Uh, this, mm, I think looking back, I would probably give that to Cinderella based on not having seen any of the others. Okay, best special effects. Winner, Starship Troopers, nominated Alien Resurrection, Contact, Men in Black, The Fifth Element, Jurassic Park, Lost World. Basically could have given it to any of them, I think. Uh, they were pretty consistent. If, ooh, in fact, I think Starship Troopers might have been the worst out of that. A lot of CGI. A lot of CGI. Um, the only difference, I think, Men in Black had CGI, but it was also like it was supposed to be uh, sort of comedic. It was sort of cartoony. I actually might have gone with the fifth element on that one, having not seen or um, Alien Resurrection. Okay, let's go to Best Supporting Actor, Vincent D'Onofrio, winner, Men in Black, nominated T.J. Walsh, Breakdown, Robert Forster, Jackie Brown, Will Patton, The Postman, Steve Buscemi, Con Air, Peter Postlewaite, Pete Postlewaite. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but I know who that was, and he was a, a fantastic actress. Best Supporting Actress. Winner, Gloria Stewart, Titanic. Huh. Courtney Cox, Scream, 2, Mila Jovovic, The Fifth Element, Winona Ryder, Alien Resurrection, Terry Hatcher, Tomorrow Never Dies, Joan Allen, Face Off. Interesting. I, hmm. I feel like I have a strong opinion, but I'm not quite sure what it is. And I don't have the counter-argument. And we're running out of time. Anyway, best writer, winner, Face Off. Good podcast. Uh, I, I said good podcast like I was patting the computer on the head. Like, um, best writer, winner, face-off, nominated, contact, mimic, uh, the devil's advocate, Starship Troopers, Men in Black. That was a little tough, but I, I think that I'm fine with that. Special awards, Gods and Monsters was the winner, George Paul Memorial Award, Dean Devlin Life Career Award, James Karen, Michael Crichton, President's Award, James Cameron, uh, Service Award, Kevin Marcus, Bradley Marcus. Don't know what any of that stuff is. All right. That was quite a detour from us on... Uh, <laughs> old Dogs? Are we still on Old Dogs? Number 18? <laughs> we're we're going to have to cut this up into <laughs> Into three episodes. This is going to be three episodes over five weeks for a list of 50 where we knocked we knocked the first half out 
exactly like we planned in one episode where I did the first 25, uh, but we only got through like a third of this list through this episode. Anyway, that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. We're going to call it here because I don't, we're, the next one on the list is, I'm not going to tell you, you're going to have to tune in, and we didn't even talk about Old Dog specifically. This was all a detour from talking about Robin Williams. Anyway, uh, yeah, um... I am sorry, part of the reason I was busy this last week, too, I was writing. I think I forgot to actually say it, too, that I had a writing deadline, but I was trying to get uh, get some writing in to an editor that's going to look over it before I go to the Atlanta Writers' Conference in May. But also, I have started working on an anthology, putting all the previous podcast stories together. I am going to get those edited and then turn them into a book, which I'm currently thinking of calling Fifty Shades of Play, which is uh, a play on, wait for it, Twilight. Uh, It is a reference, it is a little bit deeper than just making a pun of Fifty Shades of Play. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, the books were originally fan fiction that were based on the Twilight series, and they had to be changed because clearly the, uh, uh, Stephanie Myers, the author of a, one of the most successful you know, young adult romance series in the past couple decades, did not want sort of racy uh, adult romance novels to be written. It was, it was just uh, online fan fiction, uh, of which then... Um, oh, what E.L. James, I believe, is the author. I could be wrong. Uh, but they wanted that change. So I'm, I'm not expecting my fan fiction to turn anything into anything amazing. I'm simply uh, making that illusion. So I'm working on that too. I'm very excited that that is going to be a real thing. So this podcast is, is going to have an actual book uh, associated with it one day. But that is uh, all the time we have for this time. That was a weird way to say that. Uh, But anyway, thanks for tuning in, as always. And we're excited. We will start with number 17 next week. And until next time, uh, you know, tune in every week to the Silver Linings Playcast. If there's something you want to hear, hey, for real, for real, y'all, if y'all want to be on this, if you don't want us to talk about something, if you don't want us to stop talking about it, if you want me to shut down this podcast, really, we're family now. This has been going on way too long. This is a joke that just is, has gone on way too long uh, and is not going to stop anywhere. And that is why uh, you can tune in next week, every week, for as long as we decide to keep doing this, for all the latest on Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, and the Silver Linings Playbook, the book. Until next time, we'll see you down the road at Excelsior. He's kind of crazy. She's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is divorced. The other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a silver linings play cast.